0: Hallelujah Fellowship, tonight Tuesday the 19th of August 1986, our speaker is our regular Bible teacher Beresford Job and his subject tonight is anger, God's anger and man's anger. Question
1: times, so uh, that's the pattern at the moment. So if anyone's got any questions. Anything in the Bible you've read you don't understand or...
2: Anger and simple anger. Yes, the
3: two <laughs> anger. The, the there is two. You said. It. Yeah. Do you know what we were a with I said, anger is anger.
2: Yeah, that's... but there's two, angry. Mm-hmm. There's Jesus was angry. Well,
3: it's like uh, it's like a white play and a a uh, black light. A uh, black light, <laughs> like you know, if you are
0: talking about anger and
3: anger, like if anger isn't
1: sin or no, it is sin, anything, you know. <laughs> <You> well, <know>. let <laughs> no, Yeah, I think we heard. <coughs> yeah, you find. You see
0: Can what? i the question for the sake of
3: the tape. Right. The
1: I think the question is anger and the difference between right anger and wrong anger. Yeah. Does that
3: yeah. sum it up? Uh, yes. Just like me, phone up uh, the job at work and say, well, I'm sick today, I'm not going in, but at the same time, I'm all right. Definitely. Oh, I'm all right, justify anger. I'm telling a, a lie. Oh, what, and you want
1: to do lies as well? No, yeah.
3: no, I'm just saying about the anger more than anything. Like, how can we discuss that uh, if you get angry and uh, how would I put it at somebody at work or someone, mm. you know? Yeah right okay
1: yeah now anger oh yeah I'll sort of break it down and sort of probably the best thing to do is that we'll start by trying to understand why it is that we can get angry but why it is that there's right anger and wrong anger and of course this doesn't just apply to anger it applies to loads of things where there's a right version but there's a wrong version as well And, of course, it's because we're created in the image of God. Now, God, being a person, being the person upon whom all personhood has come from, God gets angry, alright? God has feelings. He's not an unfeeling God, he's got emotions. Now, the feelings and emotions that we have are all based on the feelings and emotions that he has. But the difference between Him and us is twofold. The first one is this, that God is infinite and we are finite. That's the first difference, alright? He's the Creator, we are the created. But the second is that God is holy, which means everything about Him, every aspect of His character, every attribute He has, is in perfect harmony with all the other attributes and it's absolutely pure. Whereas for us, we're tainted by sin. Now, God has that capacity to be angry. All right? God has feelings. Some Christians don't believe that God gets angry. They have this funny idea that love means you don't get angry, which is crazy. The Bible is full of the wrath and the anger of God. And if it hadn't have been for the wrath of God, Jesus would never have had to die. Because Jesus died to save us from the consequences of sin. But if God didn't get angry, there would have been no consequences of sin. He'd have said, oh, it doesn't matter if you're sinners, you're all saved. In any case, because I love you, lie. So God gets angry. But the point is, his anger is totally holy and totally pure. Now, that means for us, as we move in the Spirit, we have a capacity, as we move in the Spirit, and as we're conformed to the likeness of Jesus we are able to experience absolute anger that is pure and undefiled. When God gets angry there's no sin in that because there's no sin in God. He is utterly holy and sinless. Now we can be angry and be absolutely sinless i.e. we can be angry and be right to be angry Because God is angry in exactly the same way as we are at whatever we're angry about. But of course, the trouble with us is that we've got our own fleshly counterfeit, you see. For everything you can do moving in the spirit, you can do it moving in the flesh. But if you do it moving in the flesh, it's coming from you, it's not coming from the Lord within you, and therefore it's sinful. So it's a question, rather, of sort of knowing how to identify sinful anger so at any point I mean say we're in a situation and we want to ask the question is this right anger or wrong anger if we can define how you locate and identify wrong anger then the question is answered and we can test ourselves in these things now the whole point about the anger of god and it's it's the one thing that really makes god totally different from us is that the whole of the character of god is shot through with his love now in the new testament in the greek there are different words for different types of love brotherly love family love the love between friends sexual love. I mean, as I've said before, the Greek is a very much better language than ours. You're able to communicate so much more clearly. But when the writers wanted to talk about the love of God, they used a very little used Greek word and used it especially for the love of God. All the accepted Greek words for the different kinds of love, the Greek, uh, sorry, the Christians when talking about the love of God, they didn't use any of them. They used a, a sort of a different word which wasn't used much, so they grabbed it and it became the word for God's love and it was agape. Agape, that's the Greek word. Now what it means is a totally altruistic and selfless love concerned only with the object of its love you see what I mean? It is a totally selfless love. God's love is wrapped up totally with ourselves. Now obviously in the Trinity there is love between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Alright? In the sense that the Father loves the Son. So there's self-love within the Godhead. In the sense the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. The Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son, mutual love. But the point is this, each individual person in the Godhead loves selflessly, in the sense that Jesus was concerned only to do the will of his Father. Can you see? He loved his Father selflessly, so whether you're talking about the Father, whether you're talking about the Son or the Holy Spirit as individual persons, their love is not anything to do with themselves it's totally selfless alright so God's love means he is concerned for us he's not in it for what he can get out of it now if you mirror that say with ourselves and even take human love at its highest say take the love between mother and children one of the highest loves absolutely noble and pure in itself (coughs) but even so the love That a mother has for a child, because she's human, has also got that element in it that her love is poured out upon the child because she herself gets love and gets fulfilment from loving her child. Can you see that? There's always that difference between us and God. God gets no personal in He doesn't get anything out of loving us. Because God is totally complete within Himself. In the Trinity, they all have perfect love with each other. Therefore, God's love for us, there's nothing in it for Him whatsoever, all right? Nothing at all. His love is purely shed on us. It's purely there for the purpose of the object being loved. So that tells us this, that in God's anger, or indeed any attributes of God, but we're talking about his anger, by saying it's pure and God is pure, what that means is he's is unmixed. If something is pure, it's unmixed. All right. Now, our love has got our motives mixed in with it, whereas God loves with no... Uh, sorry, God is angry, but there's no ulterior motives whatsoever in his anger. Can you understand what I mean? For instance, if God is angry at a situation, he's not angry at that situation because it's irritated him or got on his nerves. It's not because he's been interrupted. Like say you're watching a film and the kids are especially noisy. I'll well, say the baby has a screaming fit during the royal wedding and I throw that in for you ladies' benefit because it doesn't do a lot for me watching it. But imagine baby gets a, you know, the screaming hand dabs, you know, sort of just as Sarah's saying, oh, I do what I do, right? Now, if you get angry, can you see that anger, it's, it's all mixed because it spoil your pleasure at that moment. You see what I'm getting at? Now, the anger of God is not like that. God doesn't get angry because he's moody, or because he's peeved, or because something goes wrong, because nothing ever goes wrong for God. I mean, if you're sovereign of the entire universe, nothing goes wrong, does it? So the point is that God's anger is real, but it's an anger which is a reaction of his absolute holiness. And let me define holiness as having two sides To the coins you can't have a one-sided coin every coin you've ever seen has got two sides now god's holiness can be broken down into a coin and on one side you have his absolute righteousness or how can we say the moral perfection of god so on the one hand god is morally perfect he has absolute righteousness but the other side of the coin as well is absolute justice. And it's because God is absolutely just that he cannot let sin go undealt with. If God wasn't absolutely righteous and absolutely just, then there would be no need for Jesus to die because God would say, well, sin, it doesn't matter, you see, when of course it does. So the point is, God's anger is his reaction In his absolute righteousness and absolute justice to sin. Can you see that? God's anger is to do with his very character. It's not to do with his situation or circumstances. Now I put it to you and to me that a lot of our anger is not based on righteousness and justice. I'm not saying all of it, because we all at times know righteous anger. But I will put it to you that more often our experience is that anger comes forth from us, not on the grounds of righteousness and justice, although we may put out the old verbal and try and disguise it as being that, but often our anger is because something's gone wrong that we don't like, can you see? Or we've been crossed or someone's starting to get on our nerves. And there are some people that maybe you don't like, all right? And if they do something, you might get very angry with them, all right? Really angry. And then someone says, why are you angry with them? And you say, well, look what they did. What they did was terrible and that's angered me. Whereas the chances are, another person who you did like, if they did the same thing, you wouldn't be angry. Can you see what I mean? This is the difference between God's anger and our anger. God's anger is a reaction of his absolute righteousness and absolute justice to sin, which means that God's anger is utterly impartial. All right. One of the big differences between God and us, and as we become more and more like Jesus, we'll see, this, we'll see us changing, and it's this, that God is no respecter of persons. God is absolutely impartial. God has no favourites. He deals with everyone exactly the same. I.e. God is not fickle, whereas we tend to be fickle. I.e. someone we don't like or someone we don't approve of. We've already got a disposition against them. All right? They do something and we're up the wall with moral indignation. But there's someone else who we quite like, does exactly the same thing, and, all we, you know, and we're making excuses for them. Can you see that is utter fickleness? Because it's partial, all right? We've got favourites. God hasn't. Now then, so we're seeing that God's anger is a reaction of his absolute righteousness and his absolute justice to sin. And we must see that God is actively anti-sin. Sin Sin is an enemy that God will attack, alright? And of course it's important to remind ourselves of the scriptural point that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. So it's always important to realise that. God doesn't hate people, but he hates what they do, alright? So then... God's absolute righteousness and absolute justice means that he gets angry at sin, and it's an anger that will lead him to action, all right? Now then, the prime action that it led him to was to deal with sin by sending Jesus, so that now, and we've been through this before here, sin is no longer the problem. I mean, God has dealt with sin on the cross. He's dealt with the sin of the whole world, past, present, and future. Now, I've said it before that men and women are now no longer separated from God because of their sin. They're separated from God because they haven't believed on Jesus. Because where the barrier of sin once was, on the cross, Jesus knocked it down, and he is now the barrier. He replaced the sin barrier with himself. And he stands there as an open door, all right? So that as soon as you believe on Jesus, you walk through the door and you're into the salvation of God. So God's anger at sin drove him to action, firstly, all right, to save us from sin, so that now no one ever need die in their sins, all right? But also, because of his justice, it means that there must be absolute judgment, For those who remain under the power of sin, you see. Henceforth, those who don't believe in Jesus one day end up in the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is there and will always be there throughout eternity with all the unbelievers in it because of God's anger. Can you see God's anger motivated him to do something about what he hated? To send Jesus to the cross so that no one ever need be lost. And yet, for those who weren't willing to accept salvation, the rest must accept that judgment that God in his anger has placed on the human race becoming under sin. Therefore, God's anger leaves the lake of fire as well. But also, in regards to the anger of God, and let's take a situation now where God is angry, a situation, and time and time again, for instance, in the Scriptures, you read how angry he got with Israel. All right. And uh, it's, it's not easy for us to accept, though it should be, it should be, and I, I find this a lot easier to accept now. Once I was emotionally incapable of accepting what I'm going to say now, God gets really angry with us sometimes. I've known God to be really angry with me. I really have. Now, at one time, I couldn't take that. I refused to believe that God could ever be angry with me. And it was only by discovering he was that i learned to be able to accept that fact and when i discovered god might be angry with me about something or god had a controversy rather than sort of feeling all insecure to simply realize whatever he was angry with me about if i put that right and repented of it the anger abated you see that and absolutely at peace with god again now children whose parents never get angry with them, are insecure children. Children who grow up without knowing what right and wrong is. But more importantly, children who grow up without being done by mum and dad when they do do wrong, they're insecure, you see. So then, as I've grown nearer the Lord, I've got more secure. And one of the most marvellous things that's happened to me over the last few years, say the last seven odd years or so, is when I began to enter into the relationship with God as my Father, because that's where real security came from. I mean, for years I'd known Jesus as Big Brother, all right, and I knew the Holy Spirit; He could speak to me any time, and I knew how to respond to His voice. But it was coming through and seeing the fatherhood of God. But one of the things about fathers is that fathers get angry. You see, that's why I mean, sort of, uh. Say if you've got young girls, all right, and the boys start dating them, there's always that hesitancy about their dad, isn't there? And that's quite right. Because part of the protection that a father gives to his children is that they know that there's a potential anger in that father against anything that can hurt them and that that anger will drive the father to action to protect them, even if it means laying hands on little Johnny, you see. Because if little Johnny is getting into bad ways, Dad knows that if that's not corrected, it's going to hurt him as he grows up. So Dad, maybe, has to sort of put him over his knee and maybe smack it out of him. You see what I'm getting at? So the point is that there's security. Rather than being frightened of the idea that God can get angry with us, and God can get angry with us. any father gets angry with his children when they step out of line. Rather than reacting in an insecure way to the idea that God can be angry with us, in fact, it's a very, very secure feeling. Because knowing as well that if God ever has a controversy with us as his children, then we know that if we confess our sins, no problem. The controversy is over. You see what I'm getting at there? Now then, the point about the anger of God is also one of the attributes of God is that he is self-controlled. God is totally in control of himself. So you never see God having the screaming haddabs. <laughs> All right. doesn't happen to him. He's totally secure, therefore he's not subject to going over the top or anything like that. Now that means as well that God's anger is utterly controlled too. Now in the scriptures, one of the things we're told about anger, and this is really the main verse we're interested in, is where Paul says this. He said, Be angry, but sin not. Now, therefore, from that verse, we know that there is a righteous anger, that it's okay for us to have. More than that, there's something wrong if we haven't got it in certain situations. I find as I grow nearer the Lord, there are situations that make me angry now, which would have been like wash off a duck's back a few years ago. Can you see? Because I'm coming closer to the heart of God. And therefore, his reactions become your reactions. So we know that it is right for us to be able to express the anger of God. But as soon as Paul says that, the qualification comes and he says this. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now that's the test. Because remember I've said God's anger is self-controlled, all right? It's totally, God is in complete control of himself, which means this. Even if he's genuinely angry about something, that anger doesn't bug him. And the reason it doesn't bug him is because he's not concerned with himself, he's only concerned with others, all right? Now then, that means that even in a situation where you're experiencing anger, the test is this. By the time it's bedtime, and of course he giveth to his beloved sleep, by the time it's bedtime, as you know, some of you, my sort of motto is this when the inevitable happens, enjoy it. I.e., when you can't do anything about something, then. You can't do anything, accept it, and enjoy life. Therefore, by the time it's bedtime, if you're angry about a situation, and it's the anger of God, by bedtime, there's nothing you can do about it, is there? Therefore, you'll go to sleep. See? Because you can't do anything about it. But if it's wrong anger, you lie there. And you normally lie there winning arguments with the person you're angry against. Because it's bugging you personally. Can you see what I'm trying to get at here? If your anger is bugging you personally, if you can't let go of it, then there's something wrong. Can you see what I mean? At night, can you sleep peacefully? Or is the anger still there? Because if the anger is still there, then that's not the anger. That's not true righteous anger righteous anger lets go of itself when it's bedtime it goes to sleep because it can't do anything about it you may be angry at a situation but you can't remedy it while you're asleep and the anger is there to motivate you to do something therefore lying in bed being aimlessly angry reveals that the anger is not righteous anger at all, it's because we've been bugged. And it's simply revealing our own self interest in that situation. Remember, God is never bugged, alright? He's always absolutely at peace with himself and the world. No problem, he doesn't have any problems. Now that's how he wants us to be. Therefore, a true anger, and I've known this, You know, when a situation, you know, can really have you fired up, and this may be over weeks or even months, when you really are fired up, there's an anger, there's a very deep feeling that's motivating you to do something about something that's wrong, alright, maybe something Satan's able to do, sin in people, who ought to know better and you can really have this anger in your heart and it can be there on and off maybe over a few months until it's put right. But the point is, when it comes to bedtime, you sleep. When you have to deal with something else, you deal with that, you lay that aside and you deal with what you've got to deal with. Can you see it's an anger that you are controlling? The anger is not controlling you. It's motivating you, but it's not controlling you. Conversely, I've also known the other. I've known what it is to lie awake till the small hours in the morning practicing my arguments, justifying myself, oh Lord aren't they rotten, you know, excusing myself, you know, enjoying it, praying against them. Now there's a time to pray, I pray against people, there are times when the Holy Spirit says pray against them, and I do, but again if it's in the Holy Spirit it's not personal, and as I say the wrong act you know, they're praying against them <laughs> you don't want to sleep because you're too busy praying it, can you see and it's personal yeah, and that absolutely. just proves and demonstrates that it's an anger which is a sinful anger so in regards to that the question is this there may be times when someone has done something wrong be it a brother or a sister be it a child be it a wife be it a husband be it a bloke at work, be they Christian or non-Christian, all right? And there may be a situation where they've done wrong and you're angry at the wrongdoing, all right, and that anger moves you to do something about it. No problem with that whatsoever. But you've got to know that it is righteous anger and not personal anger. That's the whole thing about it, you see? Mm -hmm. If it's righteous anger no problem because you'll do what needs to be done and it won't bug you anymore alright but if it's personal anger if it's wanting to get at that person if it's wanting to cut them down to size then that immediately disqualifies you And, um, and I suppose I mean it's like sort of sometimes people say well how do you know the right time to correct someone because in the Bible it tells us where to correct each other admonish each other we are to tell each other off that's part of fellowship together, but the point is that doesn't mean that you've got license to suddenly go around this room and point out our, all our faults, because the point is this: you've got to test it. And if you, I would say, in a situation where you feel you've got to correct someone, if the idea appeals to you, you're the wrong person. If you hate this. <laughs> Like if you if you don't like the idea, then possibly that's right, okay? And it's good to have this healthy dislike of having to sort of tell people off. I mean, I find, you know, it's like as I go around and bring God, God's word to people, I love doing this bit, all right, the teaching and stuff like that. But when it comes to personal rebuke, and, and, and you have to in, in the situation I'm in, I hate it. You know, I mean, that really can give me a stomach upset. You know, I mean, and that's healthy. Whereas maybe once a few years ago, I might have quite enjoyed it. But praise God, that's changed. I mean, it's, well, it's probably the worst thing you have to do in your Christian life. Um, so that's a way, certainly, to test it. That, that it's not personal, that you sleep at night that that it's absolutely controlled and that you're not getting anything out of it personally by being it set right you're angry for the simple reason that wrong has been done and therefore it needs to be put right but there's nothing in it for you personally all you get out of it is simply the delight of seeing a wrong put right can you see that mm-hmm. so so that's you know how you can start to you know to test yourself and we've got to You know, as I say, we've got to be ruthless with ourselves on matters like this. I mean, here's a bit more teaching from the Bible. So that means the next time you're angry, or if you're angry at the moment about something, well, here's the way, you know, for you to look inside. And it's not difficult, you know, and to be honest, what is motivating that anger? Is it righteous anger in the Holy Spirit, all right, or is it self? Another thing is that righteous anger in the Holy Spirit always motivates you to do something positive about the situation. You may have to rebuke, and that may be taken as a negative thing. But one of the things in the Bible, and this is the truth in all God's dealings with us, God will not shrink back from telling us what's wrong. Alright? And we need that. We need that. But the point is, the Bible tells us not just what's wrong, but how to put it right. Whereas personal anger stops at the destruction. Can you see that? Personal anger is interested, not in the situation being put right, it's in that person getting a piece of your mind.
3: Yeah. All right?
1: And once you've done that, the interest in them stops. Because you've you've done what you wanted to do. You wanted them to know exactly what you thought of them. They now know exactly what you thought of the mission accomplished. Whereas true anger, you're not interested in letting them know what you think of them, you're interested in them getting themselves right. Therefore, what you'll do is a positive thing. I mean, I've found that um, through the years, the number of times that I've had people come up to me, and as a Bible teacher, you're asking for this. Because I sort of find that even you can go somewhere you've never been in your life, and you minister to people you've never seen in your life. And every now and then, you can be in a situation like that. And there's always one or two people who have got really profound guidance and correction for your ministry. And I'm sure the truth of the matter is, they have for every preacher who goes there. Because there are some Christians who just like giving advice, don't they? You know, they're not happy unless they're correcting you, you see. And But I've forgotten what I was saying. What was I saying before I got into that bit? I've lost my train of thought that's right about being positive that's right and look time and time again i've had people tell me what's wrong with me or you did that wrong and when i've said well what should i have done they're stuck because all they wanted to do was tell me i did it wrong now i might have done it wrong but if they don't show me what i've done wrong what hope is there can you see that the only way we know something's wrong is because it's It goes against the teaching of the scripture. So if you're going to tell me, sort of come up to me as you're free to and correct me, it's not you saying that's wrong. You've got to say, look, that is wrong according to the scripture, but here's the way we can get it right and can I do anything to help? That's what anger does. Can you see that? It's not interested in the destruction of the person. It's not interested in their repentance except as a means to get them back being right with God, you know, so again these are all the kind of tests that, that we've really got to apply to ourselves in regards to it, perhaps just a quick word as well, seeing as um, it sort of um, you came up having sort of contrasted true anger from false anger and it sort of seems to be the question how do you know when a lie is right and how do you know when a lie is wrong
3: Yeah. no, it's more like uh, if you say something to me and uh, I get angry with you. Mm. and I really get angry with you. So you retaliate the anger. Are you right to retaliate the anger? Oh, I see. You know what I mean? Like if I get really stroppy with, or somebody's struck right. with you, like, you know, of me saying, oh, well, what am I taking this for? Get yeah. An angry bat. Ah, oh, I see. Right. like. Really. <laughs> okay. Right. Sort of a simple thing because, like, I could make you boil, like, by saying nasty things. Right. To you, because it's going to give me that much satisfaction. So, as far right. as I'm concerned, I have sinned, really. Yeah. But you—that's taking it like a dummy there and all of a sudden he said well I'm not going to take it easy so you're going right. you <laughs> to send so I'm causing you I'm to stay along with myself haven't I. Right. I'm committing both this. <laughs> okay. One, okay. One's yeah. a reaction, another, one's an action, the other one's a
2: reaction. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah because
3: his reaction back to me would yeah. be mm-hmm. really and then realise that's not right he shouldn't uh, he shouldn't be the sinner because I am the sinner. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. The principle underlines all this, and the Bible does teach very, very clearly about this. And this, in some ways, is the real nitty-gritty of: Are we really getting anywhere with the Lord? It's answering a question like this that that cuts through the claptrap. You <laughs> see, there's an awful lot of claptrap around in the kingdom of God, isn't it? I mean, we can all talk. You know, we can all, all spew out the endless doctrines. But it's things like this that really test us do we love Jesus. Because a principle is this. I am created in the image of God. Now, that makes me of infinite value. Even though I'm a sinner, and it's important to realize when man fell, he didn't stop being in the image of God. All right? I mean, the, the perverts out there who molest children. They're made in the image of God. And they're infinitely precious. Alright? The muggers. But the social workers, the bank managers, the nice people. Can you see? <laughs> now <laughs> then. Well, you know what I mean? Now then.
2: <laughs>
1: well, if your money's in the law's hands, they're nice people. Um, now then, okay, I'm in the image of God. Now that makes me of inestimable value. That made me worth dying for. That made God say it's worth sending Jesus. Don't ask me why. It's beyond me. But God considered us valuable enough. But you see, with that value, that value on us is because we're made in the image of God. All right? We're not animals. But also that brings a very grave responsibility to us because being made in the image of God means you share his attributes and remember what I said the difference is this, God is infinite and we're not God is pure we're not, we're distorted by sin but I share the attributes of God, God is omniscient, he knows everything well I know a bit and so do you, you see based on the image of God God is omnipotent he has all power whereas we have some power i mean for several years london wouldn't have lit up if it hadn't been for people like robert All the lights would have gone out the old leb london electricity board you see so we have some power now exactly the same way god has free will i've said this before when you say let there be light and there's light that's free will isn't it God can do exactly and precisely and totally what he pleases. But not only that, he does do exactly and precisely and totally what he pleases. And no one ever has been able to, and no one ever will be able to stop him. That is free will. Now that means that we have limited free will as well. Now then, that means that the truth about me, and it's the truth about all of you as well and everyone else out there, is because I am of inestimable value to God, is because I'm created in his image, which means I have free will, which by definition means I am a responsible being morally, because I have free will. Now, that boils down to this. God holds me, and not you, responsible for my sin. In exactly the same way, God holds you, and not me, responsible for your sin so in actual fact when adam and eve fell and sinned and got separated from god the very first well no the first manifestation of their now sinful state was the awareness of their nakedness and a quick rummage through the fig tree all right
3: (laughs) but the second
1: was this
2: (laughs) The second
1: was this. When confronted with their sin, and Adam got confronted first, he was the head of the wife. When Adam was confronted, what did he do? Blamed Eve. Eve. And when Eve was confronted, what did she do? Blamed Blamed the devil. (laughs) See? Now then, now sin passes the buck. Sin makes excuses. Now, If we're to be and to live right with God, and it's part of our training as children of God, if we want to grow in the Lord, we've got to obey the rules. And one of the rules is this. Your sin is your fault, and my sin is my fault. Which means this. If you're rotten to me and sin against me, that's your problem. You're quite free to do it because you've got free will, but that's your problem. If you're horrible to me then you get out of fellowship with God. That's your problem. I don't care. But if I decide that I'm not going to put up with
2: this,
1: (laughs) and if I think who do I think they are, then lo and behold, in my outrage, my moral outrage at your sin, I've done exactly the same thing. And this is the truth of the human heart. I mean, I'm so disgusted at what you've done to me. I'm so morally outraged. I'm going to do it as well. I mean, that is it. That is sin. That is the the blindness of our sin. So the point is, all right, you're horrible to me. You've sinned. You're responsible for that. You've got to repent of it. And if you don't, God's going to discipline you and not me. You're welcome to it. (laughs) But... If I then react against what you've done to me, and if I pay you back in kind, if I then react and I'm resentful or bitter against you, do you know what the law does? I'm responsible for that. I have now sinned. And God in his mind keeps the two totally separate. God does not mix up our sins, all right? So the point is, I am responsible for my reactions. Now, that's why we have so much of the teaching in the Bible. It's why Jesus said this. Now then, what happens? Someone's being rotten to us or someone has a go at us. What do we do? Well, this is why Jesus said, turn the other cheek. See? (laughs) Because the point is (laughs) this. But if you... That'll confuse the people on the table. (laughs) (laughs) But if you go for me or if you sin against me, then my attitude has been, must be in the Lord that I am not going to retaliate against you. Now, Jesus isn't there talking about, I mean, if you hit me, I, I reserve the right to defend myself. That's no problem. But the point is, in my heart, I'm not retaliating against you, all right? I mean, it's like, for instance, um, I mean, if it got to the situation, I mean, thus far in my Christian life, each time I have been attacked physically in ministry, I've put my hand up and the attacker stops. I've just said stop and and I've had people... Like that standing
2: in front of me.
1: And there's one bloke who was like that and then he got converted and he just rolled his sleeves up and then he got converted. But the point is we're you know, we are entitled to defend ourselves and most certainly to defend other people. But the point is that in our hearts we're not retaliating. That I don't want my own back. That even as you do it I forgive you. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? Alright, and Jesus said seventy times seven, which is just the Jewish way of saying ad infinitum. Alright, as seven you're dealing with wholeness. Alright. So seventy times seven, you're talking about complete you know, you're talking about infinity almost, as it were. So that means that each time you sin against me, I must forgive you. Because every time you sin against Jesus, he forgives you. And every time I sin against Jesus, he forgives me. Which means that I must forgive you if you sin against me. Now, can you see, immediately, taking umption and getting uppity is immediately a wrong thing to do. We're told to repay evil with goodness. See? So if someone's evil to you, repay them with good. Paul says, not you know, don't repay reviling with reviling. I mean, say an extreme situation, I mean, say someone is standing up, I've had this happen to me in ministry, I mean, I've... I remember one church with his bloke Stephen. He was just giving me as much verbal as he could get at the top of his voice. Now, what was my choice? Do I give it back? You see, what do I do? Now, in situations like that, I've got a policy. I smile at people. And it works if you smile at them. And I've, I've seen, you know, I mean, it might not work on them, but it, it helps me. <laughs> it's true, it's true. <laughs> will testify to it. She's seen people go for me, haven't you, verbally. And, and I just sit there with this smile on my face, just look them straight in the eye. And okay, I'm not saying it brings them to repentance, only the law can do that. But it means that I walk out unscathed. You see, because I'm staying in peace. If they want to attack me, that's fine. That's, if that's what they want to do but because I'm a slave of Jesus I'm not free to attack them back Can you see what I mean so don't repay evil for evil respond with the love of Jesus and do you know that verse where Paul talks about and he says that in so doing you will heap burning coals on their heads now this is one of the misunderstood verses alright because we take it to mean that if someone's been rotten to you and you love them back that you'll make them feel guilty, and that the burning coals heaped on their head are like their consciences being made to feel guilty. Now, the verse doesn't mean that at all, and it makes sense, because if the verse meant that, we'd all be going around loving our enemies with the express purpose of making them feel guilty. And that's not love. Can you see that? I mean, goodness, say say I'm being rotten to you, and so you decide... I'm going to be really nice to him because that will make him feel awful. <laughs> I mean, you might just as well stand up and give me verbal, mightn't you? Because you're doing the same thing. Now, what it speaks about, in the, um, in the East at that time, I mean, especially in the winter, one of the things that they depended on was a constant fire in their houses. Constant fire. To cook, to keep them warm to boil water. I mean fire in the ancient world, no central heating or anything like that, so that their fire was their lifeline, especially in the winter. Now what would happen if a bloke's fire went out, this was serious. Now what they did, they had a special hob that they carried on their head, alright, and what they do is that they go around to a neighbour's house and they get some of the, the, the coals that are burning in his fire, they bung it in this hob that went on their head, because they carried everything on their head. They rush back to their house, bung the burning coals, the glowing coals on their fire, add their own coal, and that's how they got the fire going again, all right? Now, what Paul's saying, that, that therefore you heat burning coals on their head, he says then you're being neighbourly because to heat burning coals on your neighbor's head was simply to do the neighborly thing. Their fire had gone out. So, right, use my fire to light your fire, you see. So that's what the Bible tells us to do. If people are horrible to them, well, be nice back. I mean, not with any ulterior motive. I mean, there are some people that I wouldn't even bother to be nice, but in the sense I avoid them. Mm. That, that I know that it's just best,
2: yeah.
1: you know, they want trouble. They want to stir me up, I'll just keep out of their way. There's no point trying to be nice to them. But all the point is that regardless of what your attitude is to me, regardless of what you do to me, I'm responsible before God for my attitude to you. And if you sin against me, I must forgive you. And I must do that seven times seventy times a day, if need be. (laughs) And that is nothing to do with whether you repent or not. Don't forgive someone when they've repented. Forgive them as they do it to you. All right? So that's the thing. So, in re- now, there are times when we have to take action. I mean, there are times, for instance, that, um, I mean, it's like if someone tries to break into your house, how can I say, forgive him even as he's doing it, but repel him using any blunt object that's close at hand? no problem can you see no I'm serious now then inflict the least amount of harm on him but you have a right to defend your property but the point is he's it's not a personal thing this is what I'm trying to get over to you now the main thing that it comes up with I mean it's like in our situation in fellowship or with people at work and that (coughs) we've simply got to learn that okay people are going to try and get the better of us but what matters is our reaction to them regardless of the effect it has on them I mean if you get non-Christians who are say taking you for a ride or just being a general pain to work with say they don't like you or even they're persecuting you because you're a Christian being snide about you now the important thing to realize they are responsible for that before God you're responsible for being in a a, a a love thing with those people can you see what I mean Firstly, you've got a witness to maintain and that if they see you striking back then they're just going to say well he's no different from I am and people should see a difference in regards to me now, uh, now then obviously we blow it but the point is when we have struck back we can go to them and say sorry. that's the difference between us and them. So it doesn't matter if we've blown it, but if we do strike back, or if we do give them verbal back, we've got to go and (coughs) put that right and say sorry. Because the point is, their sin is their sin, but our reaction is us. And we're responsible before God for that. So therefore, if people are being rotten to us, we must respond with forgiveness and things like that, okay? so that, okay, they're they're being rotten, they're trying to put us down, but then if that really affects us, it's only our pride that's being dented, and probably the Lord's in that anyway. I mean, I've, I've found often that God has humbled me through people who had not my good in the least bit in their mind. Their only interest was to hurt me. But behind what they were doing Was God's interest to humble me, to mature me, to make me grow? And when you think, you're sort of, oh, what does hell? What, what, (coughs) like that? You know, what are they? Who do they think they are? What that is is pure hurt pride is pouring out of you. And we know that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, or part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is to reveal and dig out sin in us, so we can be free of it you see. And if we were to be free of sin, we first got to identify it, you see. And I mean, pride's a nasty one. Because when you're proud, you won't admit it. See? So God's got to convince us of our pride. So what he does, I mean, if the only way is to get you sort of climbing up the wall, you know, and sort of like as uppity as you can get, right put out... Or what they've done well if that's what it takes the Holy Spirit will do that and you see all this pride pouring out of you and you can't deny it anymore you see and um, you know so in regards to that I mean it's like with Joseph I mean what he went through his brothers hated him they dispensed with him were going to kill him but they ended up you know selling him as a slave and I mean they, they were as rotten as brothers could have been alright but when he met up with them and got reconciled years and years later they got all a bit worried about whether he'd try and get revenge, because after all, he was number two under Pharaoh, and they were just ordinary Israelites. And, I mean, he could have had their heads chopped off any time he wanted. And so the brothers thought, uh, you know, perhaps we'd we better do a little bit of, a, you know, sort of leg crawling here, or we might be in for a rough ride when Dad dies, you see. And anyway, they go and, and stuff like that. And, um, and Jacob says, look, sorry, Joseph says, look, you meant it to me for evil, which they did. Make no mistake about it. His brothers hated him, and because of that, Satan, through his brothers, tried to destroy him because God was using him. All right, and that was absolutely true. And Joseph said, "You meant it to me for evil, but God meant it to me for good." See? So, in these situations, however horrible they are, and however satanic they are, especially if it's persecution because you're a Christian, the point is yeah it's the devil and yes those people are in sin who are doing it to you but behind it all God means it for good because if it's bringing out sinful reactions that's terrific because we can get those reactions right with God can you see the more muck is coming out and the less mixed we are the more you know less of us more of Jesus and um, you know so again it's a good test that sort of with the people that we work with or mix with I mean husband and wife as well parents and children children and parents I mean it works always here but quite simply even though people may treat us badly we are to love them with the very love that Jesus has and it is that selfless love we are to lay our life down for people if need be one of the things that the Lord spoke to me about some years ago and you know it's always good to sort of Understand the implications of a ministry, you know, sort of like there was me. Oh, I had a ministry, you know, you know, God's anointed me. I've got a ministry, and I was really thrilled in the early years because God was using me as discovering what it meant to be, you know, sort of someone who was called anointed of God, and it it was thrilling until the Lord took me on to the next stage of understanding it. And when He showed me that I was a doormat (laughs) and that part of you know in ministry, he, he said to me, he said, you're a doormat. And I thought, oh, I felt like it. <laughs> but what he showed me is that as God's people walked all over me and abused me, treated me like nothing, that they were wiping all the dirt off their feet onto me, but their feet were remaining clean. And being a doormat is the nearest equivalent we've got today of washing one another's feet. Do you remember Jesus washed the disciples' feet because their feet were dirty? Well, if you lay your lives down for the brethren, in order to clean their feet, maybe they've got to get the dirt off by walking all over you. But then isn't that exactly what Jesus allowed people to do? He used to lie down and they used to walk all over him. It was quite interesting. Roger Price had a very similar vision. And uh, he asked the Lord what he was doing in his life, and the Lord gave him a vision of a doormat, which didn't impress Roger very much, right? It's not a very nice thought. And then he said, well, what next, Lord? All right, I'm a doormat, what next? And then the Lord showed him another doormat with welcome written on it. (laughs) You see, and that's it, isn't it? You see, laying our lives down. For the brethren, Jesus did it gladly, because the love he had for others... ...was greater than the love he had for himself, you see... ...and this is all, all part of our training. Um, you know, so that in fact, we've got to... It's like Paul the Apostle said. He said, death works in us, but life in you. And the Apostles were going through a terrible affliction and persecution... ...but under their ministry, the saints were thriving. But in order for the life of Jesus to be really coming through those men... ...to build up the saints you see how much God had to deal with Paul and the others and again I've experienced this that death works in me so that life can work in you you see and there are times when you really are being trodden underfoot and everyone else is being so blessed and you think this is so crazy so unfair but the point is it's that treading underfoot that is reminding you that you're an earthenware vessel and that the power is of God. Because the moment a bloke starts to minister in the flesh, or a woman, whatever, it's no good. So can you see, in order to bless people, there's got to be this death to self. And it's often through circumstances and people treating us badly that the Lord accomplishes that in our lives. He humbles us. Um, In one of the Psalms, it talks about sort of, um, they made long furrows in our back. Yeah, you know, sort of like a picture that they sort of lay down and sort of men were going up and down them with their ploughs, you see. But then on the other hand, if you're willing to be a corn of wheat that falls into the ground and dies, then that shouldn't be a surprise that sometimes the plough is going to go over you. And uh, so it's all part of our training. And, um, you know, but it, it sort of brings out, it sort of starts to show us really how deeply we have been with the Lord. Because one can be so spiritual and and you can move in the gifts of the Spirit and that's that's all great, that's right. Um, you can have great faith and, and stuff like this and, you know, really sort of super-duper quiet time every day. But, I mean, and that's all great. I'm not decrying that. But, I mean, the real point is what came out of you the last time someone was rotten to you? Mm. Can you see now, here's... As I say, this, this cuts through the claptrap, doesn't it, you see? This this really tests our metal, And, you know, let's say, if anyone sort of thinks, oh, yeah, well, the last time, yeah, mm, I didn't do too well. I'm, I'm, I'm not as far on as I thought. Well, no problem, because that very realisation is a major step forward. So there's nothing sort of negative here or condemnatory, but, I mean, we, we do need to have a, a healthy kind of assessment of our own selves, and that that you know, when when we're sort of, if if someone comes too close to us, I mean, what do they get? Does does Jesus come out of us, or is it and the claws come out and get away, and you know, and and, and sort of the next person you see, you've got to tear them to shreds and gossip about them because they threaten you. I don't think see what I I mean. Proverbs
2: 15 verse one. I'm going to the toilet. Proverbs fifteen
1: verse one. Yes, the tapes on. (laughs) Proverbs fifteen. Well I'd better look this verse up, because obviously we're meant to Proverbs fifteen. Right, yes, here it is. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And it's certainly very true. I mean, if someone does come and give you a piece of their mind, if you give them a piece of yours back, you're going to get another piece of theirs. And you've committed yourself, you can't back down then, so they get another bit of yours, you see. And whereas a soft answer, it, it does tend to turn away wrath. And, um, you know, so I mean, it's really, it's really the nitty-gritty. But it's finally, as Jesus said, we're saved. And when we got converted, I mean, with everything that Jesus has forgiven in us, I mean, can we really go up the wall at other people? I mean, can you really find someone more rotten than yourself? I bet you can't. Not if you're willing to be honest. You that, know. That verse there works
2: like between me
1: and Beresford. If I'm getting
2: angry over something and I'm quite looking. We're not looking forward, but you're getting into the mood for a good tip. And Beretta will sit there smiling, saying nice things. It just—you can't do it. You just start laughing because
0: I'm all fired up, and there's are sitting there.
2: I think women you are more—women <laughs> are more inclined to get sort of swingy up and down. You know what I mean? Yeah. More than
0: man, you know.
2: Yeah, but it helps if the other one sits there know. smiling at you because
0: you got. Yeah, that's like, you get angry at mm. in the end. Except that sometimes some, it might make you more angry. <laughs> right. The thing I was amazed about anger, <laughs> <laughs> I just <laughs> couldn't believe my eyes. <laughs> when some of these, um, <inaudible> you know, when I first became <inaudible> a Christian, <inaudible> some of these <laughs> the, 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 the testimonies you get, <laughs> the people, you know, say that, oh, they've learned that their husband has got cancer. Mm. and They really got angry with God. I couldn't conceive this, I just couldn't, mm. <laughs> I it wasn't anything, you know, I couldn't conceive anybody could get angry, you know, mm. and I suppose this is right, you mm. know, I mean, you trust God and you think, well, why should this person I love, you know, be in this situation, why mm. should he take him away from me? I've only got about a year, a week or so to live, something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. And, uh, but you know, it still surprised me, I still couldn't understand how they could do it, because I suppose that was by myself as a person. First conversion and thinking that God couldn't do any harm, any involved, you know that sort of thing. Like you do, yeah. So uh, that really shook me.
2: Didn't I, I used to get angry when my I think I got angry with God when my sister was dying. Mm-hmm. Even when she died, I I don't know who I was angry with, but I was certainly boiling over. Mm-hmm. I used to wake up at night with. Burning <coughs> anger because she was dead, because she was suffered such a terrible death and she was gone. Mm. And I used to burn with anger. I, I wanted to almost kill someone with mm. you know real anger. Yeah. And and I didn't know what. I knew it was up to about two years. I got it, and after two years it went away. Mm. It was yeah. like a a hit for what happened to her.
1: Yeah. That's right. It was a
2: burning in my heart. I, yeah. I couldn't lash it out, but it used to wake me at night and I used to feel very uncomfortable. Mm. I used to
0: have to pray against. Cost it. Well, a lot of this can be sort of, you know, not in your case. Not in your case, but lot, you know, like these people, these women who get upset because their husband is going to die. It might be themselves, sort of a guilt in themselves, and they think, oh, if I hadn't done this, or if we hadn't done this, uh, this situation wouldn't have happened. You know. This sort of thing could, uh, you know, could be that sort of guilt in men that's causing. Yeah. That's uh, they, they can't react. Want to admit yeah. guilt in themselves, but they react in anger because of the guilt. This is a yeah. lot of things. It's
2: God's fault, isn't it? Because He could stop it.
1: No, it's not God's
2: fault. (laughs) No, no.
1: no.
3: The very thing I was going
1: to say next, and I was just getting ready to come in with this, is this point that again another sure, surefire way to identify whether anger is right or wrong is because in this world, one of the things that you observe is the very thing that Val has said. Now. Okay, accepting that in reality people do it can you think of anything more ridiculous than being angry at God I can you see that the phenomenon of anger directed against God is the surest way to demonstrate that that anger is satanic and it's sinful because if there's one person whose fault it cannot be it's God and you see If we're saying that as Christians, we believe in God, then we believe in the infinite, personal, sovereign, loving God and creator. Now, that definition means he's never done anything wrong. It means a lot more than that, but it means that God is is, is totally blameless. And the reason, I mean, whose fault is it? and this is the sobering thing and this is why we end up blaming God (coughs) remember the second thing that happened after they fell here's the point because it's our fault and as soon as we start accepting responsibility for things that have gone wrong but like Adam and Eve it was someone else's fault I mean at one point Adam first of all he said you know sort of the woman gave it to me and it was her fault, and, and then he said, the woman whom thou gavest to me. Yeah. Lord, but if you hadn't created her, it wouldn't have happened. So far, he wanted to pin it on God. Oh, Lord, it's your fault, if you hadn't given me her. You see? Whereas, why did God give him Eve? To make him happy. You know, and of course, obviously, in a sinful world, God is finally the one who gets blamed. When God is the one person who isn't responsible you see and it's an incredible phenomenon Um, I can't remember what it was who was telling us um, but you know in aircraft they have black boxes alright and they're recording the flight the whole time and if there's likely to be a crash in an airline, aeroplane the black box is recording not only the instruments but it's recording audio what's going on in the cockpit alright Now, we discovered from someone who knew... Roger. Pardon? Roger. Oh, it was him, was it, on a tape? Yeah. Fascinating. That before they release the black boxes after a crash for a general inquiry, they have to edit them. And the reason they have to is because it's been noticed time and time again. You see, on a black box, you're actually recording death. Can you see that? You're recording men just before they meet with death. And it's been noted that men and women die cursing God. See? And they edit it out before they release it. Pilots, just before they crash, they're cursing God as they're dying. A lifetime's anger comes out, but they're blaming God. You think it would be the
0: opposite. Yeah. You You think it
1: would. Yeah, that's right, but this is sin. This is sin. (laughs) You see, that's the point.
2: Jesus, asked yeah. Well, that's right.
1: But then, there's no fear of the Lord before their eyes, you see. Um, and so really, in some ways, and I mean, it's important for us because, you see, we're very soft on ourselves. I mean, today, we are self-indulgent Christians. I mean, because the society we live in is self-indulgent, all right? Therefore... I mean, at every point in history, the church is most susceptible to the sin rampant in the world at any one time. And today, it's self-indulgence, all right? I mean, we got all the psychiatrists, and they just want to reassure you that, that I mean, that the only reason you mugged that old lady was you weren't loved as a child. Oh, dear. You know, I mean... It's not because he's evil and a mugger and a thief and a coward. No, it's because he wasn't loved. You see? Can you see that the whole world, you know, our society, is there to pamper, to, to stop people being responsible for their own sin. And that it's so easy amongst Christians, in our own hearts, when we are blaming God for something. And I mean, again, I put it to you. Surely he's the last person we ought to blame. Blame Adam. (laughs) No, you can't blame Adam. I don't think I was blaming
2: God. I. I, I Oh, no, I I wasn't necessarily... I didn't know who I was blaming. It's a feeling, I think.
1: Well, yeah, that's right. I heard. That's right.
2: I wasn't actually... I wasn't blaming God, you know. Yeah. But I, I, I didn't know who I was blaming. It was like a... A Nira thing. Yeah. I was, it was a bit like, like oh. Jesus' experience at, at the death of Lazarus. Yeah, <laughs> it was where where it says that Jesus wept. That's right. And he couldn't have he couldn't have been cried because he knew that Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead in a minute. But he was he was it was the deep emotion yeah. of the anger yeah. of the, of the of, of what death can do and of what distress that death can cause. Uh, the bereaved, uh, yes. not the one who's got, because they've gone beyond anyway, but, but the um, the person, the people that are left behind, who are left to grieve, um, and um, I, I think it, it's that, it's that sort of anger at um, at suffering and, and death. and. Uh, you know, not being able to do anything about it. Yes, but it must mm-hmm. be even worse for people. I mean, I knew that Mary was saved. So that was really lovely. That was, you know. Yeah. But what about the ones that that um, don't know anything, that thinks she's gone just into this whatever is <coughs> beyond? Mm-hmm. How do they feel? Because we have hope, because we know so we to mm-hmm. see this. That's right. Yeah. But then,
1: on the other hand, you see... You've still got to be, I mean, there's the real, I mean, if we're going to be subject to that over someone who's died in the Lord, well, I mean, we have to handle loved ones maybe dying without the Lord. And again, we've got to have enough metal in us to be able to live with that, you see.
2: But how could one live with that? Being a Christian and knowing that your
1: child went to hell? That's well, I have so to Matthew. with my brother. I have to. Yes, it is a dreadful thing. It's a terrible mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. But Jesus died so they didn't have to. I mean, it was his choice. It was his choice.
2: But are you saying that people die a long and painful death because of
1: their sin? Oh, no, no. I'm just saying that, obviously... We've all got to be able, sort of, potentially at least, to face the fact that our loved ones may die without the Lord.
2: But why does some die quickly and some do die a very long and very painful death?
1: That's because with the sin of man, Adam was placed on the earth and he was given dominion over the earth. Adam and Eve had authority over the planet, all right? Now, the point is that because they sinned, that sin entered down and affected everything under their authority. And that is why nature was affected by sin. Nature was cursed because Adam sinned. Adam had authority over nature. He was there to tend the earth. He was there to be in charge. Jesus Jesus never planned to rule the earth. He never planned to rule the earth. He planned for man to rule the earth. It was only because of sin that now Jesus is one day going to rule the earth. Jesus never wanted to rule the earth. Jesus doesn't want authority. He's meek and lowly. You see, but he's had to take authority because sin has happened. So the point is, Adam, when he sinned, You see, again, everything under his authority was cursed as well. The universe we live in is cursed. Now, because of sin, death has come into the world. Because God said to Adam that dying, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And I've been over it with you before, that in the Hebrew, when God speaks to him in the garden, and he warns him about not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge... Of good and evil but in the Hebrew it says in the day you eat of it dying you shall surely die it's not you shall die it's dying you shall surely die because the point is remember Adam had a body and a spirit and because of that he was a living soul alright and what God said is that the moment you sin immediately your spirit will die on the spot and it's through our spirit we have contact with God Alright, so immediately his spirit died, and everyone from that day onwards has been born with a dead spirit, and when you get born again, that's when your spirit gets raised to life by the Holy Spirit, see. But the point is, God said, dying, i.e. your spirit will die on the spot, but you shall surely die. As a result of his spirit dying, he's now cut off from God, his body would die and death set in. But not just into him, but the whole earth, the weeds started to come up. You get decay, you get cancer, you get spastic babies, you get mongoloid children. It's the result of sin. All imperfection in this universe is the result of man's sin. And when babies are born crippled and deformed, what right have we got to blame God?
2: Do you think it's a personal sin, or is it just general Oh, no. Sin? No, it's
1: not a personal sin. No, can't be a personal sin, because if a baby has been born as a mongoloid, yeah. well, I mean, that baby hasn't existed before it was yeah, conceived. Yeah, but I mean
2: for the
1: parents, like, <laughs> could that have something to do with the parents' sin? In certain instances, yes. Yes, it can. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The classic example, I mean, take babies who are born with VD. Mm. <laughs> take babies who are born with Dixies heroin. Well, yeah, it can. You see, because it has a natural cause and effect. This is the whole point. I mean, there is cause and effect. I mean, it's like some people say, I mean, sort of like, AIDS the judgment of God, all right, and, and you get a big controversy about it, and there are some Christians saying it is, and others who are saying, oh, it's dreadful, you can't say that. And, well, my answer, of course, of course it is God's judgment. Because things like that have come about because of sexual immorality you see and the point is that sin has got its own built-in judgment you see this is it it's got its own built-in judgment the earth is unstable And i mean during the great tribulation i mean the earth is going to near enough shake itself to bits i mean it won't exactly completely shake itself to bits But, I mean, there are going to be the most incredible earthquakes. The universe is shaking itself a bit. Already there are meteors, some of them poisonous, which are already flying through space towards us as a result of sin. And they're timed to arrive on earth in the tribulation. You see... Oh, we're running out of time. Yeah, because sin has its it's it's own built-in judgment.
2: That Christians, don't they say that Whatever happens, God permits it.
1: Well, absolutely. Um, it needs. I to mean,
2: concerning Job, he was perfect in some God's sight,
1: hmm.
2: and He handed him over just to Satan.
1: That's right. Yeah. What we need to, under I mean, God allows it. Of course, He does, because He honors our free will. And when God created man. He knew that man was going to sin, and he knew the results of that sin. didn't catch God by surprise. He also had the answer to that sin, already planned. But the point is that because we've got free will, God, how can I say it? God was willing to take the risk. I'll go further. He gambled and he lost. But of course he didn't gamble and he didn't lose, because God is omniscient, which means he knows everything even before it happens. Now, with the phrase that God allowed it to happen, you see, we have to understand that, that there's cause and effect. Everything exists because God puts it there. And everything exists the particular way it does because man has fallen from grace, alright, and has sinned. Now, often... We use the... And this is a classic example about evangelical jargon, actually. One thing I've been thinking about... I mean, I think I'm relatively free of jargon. I've always kept an eye on myself with this. (laughs) And I'm relatively free of jargon. And there's one little thing I was thinking of the other day. And it's like, when you... And I mean, I'm I'm not having... I'm not saying this is wrong and you've got to stop. But it makes me giggle... All right. the way that we call people brother so and so or sister so and so and I was thinking the other day and I was thinking that not once have I ever called my brother Christopher brother my brother Christopher is Christopher to me I'm trying to I mean, can you imagine it if you called your brother brother <laughs> or if you called your sister sister you see I mean it's jargon isn't it and you see the thing is that often maybe somebody's talking about something that's happened and we say, yes, but God allowed it to happen. Now, we say that as if it's a sentence charged with meaning. That nay, it's almost the answer to the problem. This is the revelation you need. Well, of course, God allowed it to happen. Now, let me say that the phrase God allowed it to happen is next to meaningless. Because of course God allowed it to happen. Can you see? Of course he did, because if he wasn't going to allow it, it wouldn't have happened. Now, we've got to view it, maybe, and this will put it more in contrast. I mean, don't, don't put too much spiritual significance on the fact that something happens. Now, let me tell you this. Babies were bombed with napalm in Vietnam, because God allowed it. But that tells us next to nothing of itself, does it? It's meaningless. It's simply a fact. God allows it to happen, because if God didn't allow it to happen, it wouldn't happen. You see? So, I mean,
2: Don't you think that God sometimes tests our faith? I mean, a person that can go through (laughs) suffering and still believe and love God,
3: proves
2: that their faith and love for God is true.
1: Oh, yeah. I accept that there are trials and tribulations, some of which come directly from the hand of God, absolutely. But others are simply the result of sin. But even through those, God can work, like Joseph and the brothers he had. Now, that wasn't God doing it in Joseph's life, you see. It was the point that there was the devil and Joseph's brothers were sinners and they hated him and Satan wanted to stop Joseph. But what we're talking about here is the sovereignty of God. And it's Romans 8, 28. For we know that in everything, God works together for good to them that love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now that is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is that even though everyone's got free will, which they have, And even though there's a devil, which there is. And even though the world hates us, which it does. And even though there are always the unexplained mysteries, which there are. The point is that as long as we continue in fellowship with Jesus, all of these are going to work together for good. That even the ones that God doesn't send, And remember that before Satan can do anything in us, he has to go and ask God's permission first. Alright? All right? So say, for instance, Satan says, right, Father, I want to inflict Roger Price with cancer, can I? And do you know what the Father said? He said, yes, you can. So Roger Price gets cancer. But all the time, God's going to heal him anyway. Now, can you see there is no significance of itself because God allowed something to happen. The phrase God allowed it to happen is equivalent to saying it is. And when you've said that something is, your statement has said that it exists, and that's all. You can't draw any more information about the situation you're talking about. If I say there's a chair, I have communicated to you that there's a chair there. But if I want you to understand the chair, I've got to go further, haven't I? My phrase, there's a chair, simply communicates there's a chair. Mm -hmm. Now, with saying God allowed something to happen, it's just another way of saying it happened. To find out what God wants to do about it, we turn to this. And Jesus wants to heal the sick. So, you see, God has allowed Roger Price to get cancer. Now, for some Christians... In certain situations, they equate the mere fact that something has happened means that God wanted it to. Absolute rot. The fact that I allow something to happen, the fact that I allow Belinda to go and blow most of what we had today on, on Cadbury's cream eggs that we going at half price, doesn't necessarily mean I wanted her to. But because I love her I allowed her to you see all I'm trying to say is that allowing something isn't necessarily the same as what you want you say only 5p yeah but you don't know how many she
2: bought
1: (laughs) (laughs) you see so the thing is for instance yeah God has allowed Roger Price to get cancer Satan presented himself to to God and he said as he did with Job I'm going to do this to Roger Price and the Lord said Right, I'm going to let you, because I can glorify myself if I let you do that. So so Satan zaps down to do it. But you see, God's design for Job was to destroy him. And God's design for Roger is to destroy... Sorry,
2: Satan's design for Job... Sorry,
1: Satan's intention for Job was to destroy him. And Satan's intention for Roger is to destroy him, to kill him. But God's intention was simply that Job would come out of that experience closer to the Lord than he was before. And that's exactly what he's doing with Roger. And Roger knows that. He said it. It's in the letters he sent but out. But what
2: happens if, if he dies like David Watson? still, you know, is it still the same? Well, days.
1: again, what happens if he dies? Again, if he dies, I mean, say we get news through tonight, you know, that he's gone... We're not going to, because he's not going. Right. But say he just, just yeah, say hypothetically, yeah. all right, right. All that tells us is that Roger Price is dead. Even that doesn't necessarily tell us anything about God's will. Again, we're a bit naughty about this, you see. We pray for someone, they're not healed, so we assume that God doesn't want to heal everyone. Lunatic! The Bible says He does, and we're not interested in our experience. The Word of God is our final authority. Refer to last meeting's tape (laughs) to, to verify that. The Bible is our final authority in all things, you see. So, therefore, okay, let's say Roger Price dies, all right? Okay, somewhere along the line, we've blown it, haven't we? Okay? But think of it like this. Is Roger going to be unhappy? No? He'll be pleased? See? Now, obviously, you know, I mean, his family are going to be upset for a while, all right? But maximum, they're only going to be upset until they've had their three score years and ten, and then they're going to die, and they're going to be with him and with the Lord anyway. So even there, I mean, we're, we're very down here oriented, aren't we? If we were a bit more eternity oriented, a lot of tragedy ceases to be tragedy that's true. And I mean the death of a Christian is not a tragedy now having said that if the Lord took Belinda home tonight to me that is I, I don't know how I could survive that but that's me talking the Bible says it's not a tragedy you see what I mean obviously I will feel the loss of it but the point is that if we get eternity minded these things
3: sort of start to come, you know, that's right, right in perspective. In perspective.